Welcome to the 12th episode of the readings from the book, The Holy Ground of Honey Creek, Reflections of a Small Town Pastor, written by Rev. I. Dean Jordan, read to you by John Jordan. Rev. Jordan writes in the preface that he began his ministry in 1950 and retired for the first time in 1988 after serving almost 40 years as a United Methodist minister. Then, after retiring, he spent another four years as a part-time minister for the United Church of Christ. He continues by writing that he realized that the 50 years that he served as a minister have been like no other in challenging our faith, and he thought someone should write a book about it. A book full of insights gained in serving local congregations as we struggle to put our faith into action. This book consists of essays, sermons, liturgy, and other writings by Reverend Jordan that he created and wrote during his time as a minister. In this episode, we will look and read the sermon, An Answer Out of the Whirlwind, first given December 2nd, 1956, at the First United Methodist Church, Sturgeon Bay, in Jacksonport, Wisconsin. The purpose of the sermon is to present the climax of the Book of Job. This was the concluding sermon of a series of four on the Book of Job. The one line in Job that I have puzzled over and puzzled over and puzzled over is the line in which Job says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. From the Harper Study Bible, Job, chapter 42, verse 6. I think that if I could just figure out this line, the whole poem would clarify itself. As a matter of fact, in another translation in the Jerusalem Bible, it does clarify it. In that translation, it substitutes the word retract for repent. Let's review the last three weeks' sermons to refresh your memories. By all the standards of his time, and ours, Job was an exemplary human being. See Job chapter 31. Honest, faithful to his wife in thought and deed, a fair and considerate employer, neither greedy in his wealth nor boastful in his riches, charitable to the poor, the widow, the orphan, not puffed up with vanity, not an idolater, not vengeful toward his enemies, hospitable to strangers, not hypocritical, a good steward of the land, an exemplary human being. Even so, calamity overtook him. His wealth was wiped out when all his animals and buildings were destroyed. When all his children and grandchildren were killed in one calamitous storm, next his health gave way and he was racked with pain and so marred by disease that he was loathsome to look at. His position of eminence and respect in the community collapsed. He became an object of scorn and reproach, a pariah to his people. Even the children made sport of him, and his wife, who had stood so loyally by him, was filled with hopelessness and counseled him to curse God and die. But still the question of what should he repent? There were his three friends, you remember, Eliphaz, so far and Bildad, they stuck with Job. They came to sit with him and to comfort him and to offer counsel. They were full of the accepted theology of the time. The righteous will be blessed with good fortune. Righteousness is attained by our own effort. Humans are able to work out their own salvation. But Job's obvious calamitous condition, coupled with his adamant insistence on his goodness, so disoriented his friends that eventually they said such peculiar things as, Job was a liar, for he was a great sinner. Just look at him. 
The human being is no better than a maggot, unable to do good. Their theology said that if you were good, you were saved. Bad things only happen to bad people. Job's condition was a betrayal of that theology. And his friends went on to say what worms humans are. Humans deserve the worst calamities. His friends had no explanation why they themselves didn't suffer from calamity. In short, they became so confused, there were no help at all. How then was Job to make sense out of what had happened to him? And why should he despise himself and repent? In one of his early speeches, Job expresses this insight. This shall be my salvation, that a godless man shall not come before the Almighty. Job 13, verse 16. A godless man shall not come before God. A godless man is one who has nothing at all to do with God. One who has separated himself from God. One who denies the existence of God. Such a person is a person who has committed sin with a capital S. Like the prodigal son, going into a far country, leaving no foreign address, no telephone number, no letters, nothing. Thus cutting himself off from his family. Or through sin, cutting himself off from God. Now, it is possible to sin with a lowercase s and still not be cut off from God. Just as a child can sin by breaking his mother's favorite dish, but that does not separate him from her, breaking one of his mother's dishes does not make him motherless, even if it is a favorite dish. Nor does breaking one of God's rules make a person godless. Godless stays in touch with those who have broken any number of his rules and have broken or damaged some of God's favorite creation. The relation with God will be a little strained for a while, as God gives the transgressor a piece of his mind, just as the child finds himself in the center of his mother's anger. But the child is not motherless, and the person is not godless, so long as the relationship holds. Even though the child and the person are not perfect, they are not motherless or godless. Job had never cut himself off from God. Just the opposite. In the midst of his misfortunes and anguish, Job heroically clung to his confidence in God and sought a direct audience with him. In spite of his friend's accusations, Job was, had been, and would remain faithful to God. But where was God? A goodly portion of the poem deals with Job's attempts to find God and with the challenges to God to come forth and meet Job's demands. Job speaks, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I will carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give God an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. But the challenges are responded to only by his friends, and they are drawing away from him more and more. You get the feeling that although Job was distraught because of his physical and familiar and economic disasters, the chief cause of his anguish was the growing conviction that he was alone, cut off not only from all human companionship, but isolated from God. 
from a god who didn't even care. At this point in the poem, there unexpectedly appears a fourth man, Elihu by name, and there's a long speech, a poem of five chapters given by him. But he says nothing new. He simply repeats the traditional view that God blesses the righteous and punishes the sinful. Most scholars today are in agreement that these five chapters were added later to the original poem by someone who didn't like the way the original author concluded his poem. As they add nothing new, we shall set them aside for now. And when we set these five chapters to one side, a revealing thing happens. Immediately after Job hurls his challenge, Let the Almighty answer me, the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. God speaks. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up his loins like a man? I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Job, chapter 38, verse 3. Immediately we recall the insight that a godless man shall not come before the Almighty. And we know at once that Job is vindicated. The calamities that have come upon him are not punishment for sin. They are not God's revenge for Job's questioning God. The friends are wrong in their equating personal misfortune with God's punishment for sin. Simply by appearing and speaking to Job, God affirms Job's faithfulness. So the old theology is demolished with its teachings that we save ourselves by our own efforts, that the righteous prosper and only the sinners suffer. This point is established simply by God's appearing and speaking to Job. There are no other long-winded arguments that need to be made. And when God speaks, he does not address himself to Job's calamities. Rather, he speaks to Job's challenges. In effect, God says, You would challenge the Almighty, Job? Look around you, and see if you compare in power and authority with God. Here is the way the poet phrases it. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds in its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed the bounds for it and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Horion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear and its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish the rule on earth? This was Job chapter 38. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job chapter 40. And now, in God's presence, Job, who had been adamantly affirming to his friends that he was not suffering for sin and heroically challenging God to provide some answers to his dilemma and some relief from his anguish, 
Now Job forgets his suffering and misfortune, and he is overwhelmingly aware of the foolish audacity that led him to hurl challenges at the Almighty. Job speaks, I am of small account. What shall I answer thee? Job, chapter 40, verse 4, Revised Standard Version, and continues in the Jerusalem Bible, I am the man who obscures your designs with my empty-headed words. I have been holding forth on matters I cannot understand, on marvels beyond me and my knowledge. I knew you then only by hearsay, but now I am directly aware of your presence. I retract all I have said, and in dust and ashes I repent. Jerusalem Bible, chapter 42, verse 3, 5, and 6. And now I understand. He repents not of sins which caused his suffering. That suffering is not caused by sin. His repentance is for the audacity which he now sees so very foolish. The audacity to challenge God as if he, Job, were an equal to the deity. His repentance is not a collapse of character. The Revised Standard Version, which says, I despise myself and repent, would lead one to think of it as a collapse. Rather, he retracts his challenge. He realizes that he is not equal to God. His repentance is in reality a confession that at last he has a clear understanding of himself in relation to God. No person is equal to God, even though that person is a good person and in touch with God. This is a declaration of true humility in God's presence. Job, at last, understands that this great God whom he had thought so distant was with him all the time. He, Job, had never been alone. God, who energizes the universe, is always present with all parts and persons of it. I think that in his new awareness, Job would fully agree with the psalmist who said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Psalms 23, verse 4. And he understands more. He understands that this great love of God is beyond the understanding, though not the reach of human beings. This is an understanding we need to reaffirm in our time of mind-boggling advances in knowledge about our world and about our living bodies. In spite of our astounding scientific achievements, God is still beyond comprehension. We can be in touch with God, but we cannot reduce God to our human formulas, magnificent though our formulas may be. In his new humility and renewed awareness of God, Job has a better understanding of himself and of God and the relationship between them than ever he had before. And his life is secure once more, even though he still is beset by calamity. While we may not have the dramatic confrontation with God experienced by Job, we can claim for ourselves Job's insight that God is with us in the midst of our lives, in our sorrows and joys, in our disappointments and victories, and aware of the greatness of God who is present, great beyond our imagining, and present more intimately than we can fully understand. We can find confidence for living and hope for the future in the midst of our turbulent and frightening time. In the name of Jesus, our Christ, Amen, Amen, Amen. Mm-hmm.
This ends the episode of the twelfth reading from the book The Holy Ground of Honey Creek, Reflections of a Small Town Pastor, written by Reverend I. Dean Jordan. In our next episode, we'll be reading three essays, Sowing Seeds of Kindness from 1991, Handshakes and Human Bonds from 1993, and A Prophetic Word for Today, written in 1992. These three essays deal with personal relationships, both with each other and in a larger society. The one on handshakes and human bonds has significance as we go through the pandemic and how do we recognize the worth of people that we meet and work with. I hope that next time, as you listen to these three essays, you will also gain insights in relationships, both personal with others and as society. Till next time, thank you for listening. I'm John Jordan.